and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Jeffrey H. Jackson back to the program today. Jeff is a professor of history at Rhodes College and was last on Book Talk to talk about Paris Underwater, how the City of Light survived the Great Flood of 1910. Today we'll be talking about his brand new book, Paper Bullets, Two Artists Who Risked Their Lives to Defy the Nazis. Well, Jeff, it's so great to have you on Book Talk again, and it's even better to see an author face-to-face. I haven't had an in-person interview in over six months. Well, I'm glad you could come to the front porch and have a chance to talk. A whole half-mile drive over here, (laughs) and you had, what, 25 feet from your computer to here. Right, right. (laughs) So you're a professor at Rhodes College. Mm -hmm. How has the coronavirus thing been affecting your uh, job over there? Well, of course, we can't teach in person. The college is closed and everything's online. And, you know, we didn't know how that was going to go. None of us have ever done that before. Rhodes is not an online place. You know, we're very much an in-person, personal contact kind of school. But I think I think it's actually gone pretty well. I think the students have been very flexible and understanding. I think faculty have worked really hard to adapt to figure out how to do an online delivery as best we can. And I feel like my classes at least are going pretty well. And of course, I'm still very much looking forward to getting back in the classroom. But under the current circumstances, I think we're doing we're doing a pretty good job. And of course, Rhodes has been in the news a lot recently because of the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to right. the Supreme Court. So how has that affected the community? Have, have you picked up on anything there? You know, there's been some controversy, obviously, because of some of her views. But I think the college has really sort of taken the stance that we, you know, we support all of our alumni. Our alumni go on to do great things and have for many, many years and will continue to do that. We have a lot of folks who do pre-law at Rhodes. We have a a top-notch mock trial program. People come from all over the country to do mock trial at Rhodes. And we have a long history with the Supreme Court. I mean, Abe Fortas former Supreme Court justice, was a graduate of Rhodes many years ago, and we've had numerous justices come and speak. And so, you know, in some ways, this is part of a longer story, I think, uh, at Rhodes. It it transcends any one particular person. I think Kavanaugh might have more in uh, common with Abe Fortas than anybody else. (laughs) Well, I'll leave that to to the Supreme Court scholars. (laughs) So let's talk about your book. How did you come across the story of Lucy Schwab and Suzanne Malherbe? Yeah, Suzanne Malherbe. So I didn't know anything about them. I think one of the things that's interesting about this and that I've, as I've talked to people about it, you know, it it really is a kind of unknown World War II story for most people. But I came across it thanks to my wife, actually. My wife taught for many years at Memphis College of Art, which, of course, as you know, is now out of business. But one of the many courses that she taught over there as an art historian was a course on the history of photography. And Lucy and Suzanne are, are actually better known today by their artistic names, Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore. And their photography was sort of rediscovered kind of in the 80s and 90s in particular and has kind of been growing in popularity, especially in academic circles and people who are interested in certain kinds of photography. And so my wife had had been teaching some of their photographs in her history of photography course. And so I was sort of looking for a project and we were talking one night and she said, well, you really need to look at these artists, these photographers, you need to look at their work. And so I started looking at it and she mentioned that they had done something to fight the Nazis, but she didn't really know much about the story. So I just started investigating it, looking into it, and I found that, you know, little bits and pieces of that story had been written, but really nothing substantive, really nothing at great length. So the more I started looking into it, the more interested I was and the more fascinated I became. And I I think it's really an inspiring story. A lot of people that I've talked to have really said, you know, this is a story about two women who are engaged in this resistance in very surprising ways. You know, the, the kinds of things that they did to fight the Nazis were not the kinds of typical things that, that we hear people in the kinds of stories that we do know about. And so I think just hearing their story and listening to the kinds of things that they did and learning about the kinds of things that they did would just continue to draw me in. World War II era seems to be kind of pushing the edge of where you usually do your historical studies. Right. My work has tended to be a little bit earlier, kind of late 19th, early 20th century. My first book was about jazz music in Paris in the 20s and 30s. And then I wrote Paris Underwater about the Paris flood of 1910. But one of the things that I've found about myself is that I have to keep looking for new projects and and new ideas just to keep myself intellectually fresh. And so I've taught this time period. I've taught 20th century Europe for many years at Rhodes. And so kind of stretching a little bit. I also teach a course on the history of fascism at Rhodes. So this wasn't too much of a stretch for me, but it certainly did kind of bring me a little bit forward in terms of the research I had done compared to previously. And it took you outside of France, albeit just 12 miles. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. I mean, in some ways, this is a is an interesting project for me because it clearly has roots, you know, in my training as a French historian because Lucy and Suzanne both were French and many of their documents, things were in French. And so I was able to access that. 
But you're right that the bulk of the story really happens on the island of Jersey, one of the Channel Islands just off the French coast, but it's British territory. And so it's an international project, I guess <laughs> you would say. It's both French and British. And, and then, of course, with the Germans arriving, it's kind of a bigger you know, European story. And as I wrote it, I really tried to think of it also more, too, as a kind of a human story. You know, it's something that really appeals to a lot of different readers because there's some real kind of profound human issues that a lot of people face that are in this story. And I think it, it's something that still very much resonates today. The Isle of Jersey and the rest of the Channel Islands have a very strange standing inside the United Kingdom itself. They do, and I'm not an expert on the constitutional you know, issues of Jersey, but as I understand it, they're part of the British crown, so they are loyal to the, the British monarch, but they have a kind of quasi-independence. They have a certain official that's appointed by the crown, but they are essentially self-governing. They, they elect their own body. In Jersey, it's called the states. It's their own parliamentary body. But they use British currency. They use the pound. And so it is kind of in between in a lot of ways. It's quasi-independent, but at the same time, it's still very British in a lot of ways. And yet, at the same time, a lot of the place names and a lot of old family names are clearly derived from French. So it's very close to Normandy. So they have a lot of Norman heritage. And so it's, it's very much a kind of blended place. And I think that's part of what actually appealed to Lucy and Suzanne when they when they moved there, that they were able to still hear French and speak French in the streets. But they also, both of them had had connections with England before. They both spoke English. And so it was for them also kind of an in-between place, a way to, to get outside of Paris, get outside of France at a very tricky moment, but to still be in a place that, that had a certain amount of familiarity to it as well. Do they have a specific dialect they speak there? There is a dialect. I don't know if anybody still speaks it. I didn't look into this part too much. It's called Jerez. But I know that I ran across references to during the war, this was one of the things that allowed the local population to kind of evade the Nazis. They were able to speak in their local dialect and the Nazis didn't know what they were talking about. So it was one thing that some of the other folks on the island were able to use, a tool that they had to be able to resist and to avoid the Nazis. So we know there are Nazis coming in the story. That's right. <laughs> but let's flash back to when they first met. They met very young as children. That's right. Lucy and Suzanne both grew up in the city of Nantes in southern France. They were both daughters of wealth and privilege. Lucy's father was a newspaper owner and editor. Suzanne's father was a very well-known and prominent physician and head of the local medical school there. So they grew up in those kind of elite society circles, played together as children, and then kind of reconnected. Lucy went to school in England for a year when she was 12 and then came back. And, and that's really when sort of their love story started to blossom as well. So they, they'd known each other for a while, but then as teenagers and young women, they fell in love. And that really becomes a crucial part of the story, too. And while this would have been very controversial and scandalous back in the day, it doesn't seem like they met too much resistance from their parents during all this? It's hard to know. I mean, the, the sources that I had to work with didn't talk about that extensively. And in fact, they didn't really talk a lot about, you know, how they identified or they didn't talk a lot about their own experience in that respect. And that's probably pretty typical of the day, you know, something that was known but not really discussed for a lot of folks. But, you know, my sense is that at some point their families just sort of knew and kind of accepted what was happening. In particular, there was a point where you know, Lucy suffered from a lot of ill health, some chronic illnesses, and Suzanne, I think, really became a kind of stabilizing force and began to care for her and take care of her. And so I think that my sense is that the families, you know, also kind of accepted it for that reason, that, that Suzanne was good for Lucy, or they were good for each other, but Suzanne in particular was helping to nurse Lucy through some very difficult chronic illness. And that would be true for the rest of their lives as well, or le the rest of Lucy's life. She may have inherited some of her difficulties in life from her mother. Lucy's mother was institutionalized. She was. She had some significant mental health issues. We don't know exactly what those were, but she did end up in an institution, as you say, in Paris. Lucy's father committed her to an institution, and that was very traumatic for Lucy as a young girl. There was a lot of instability, uncertainty, sort of family drama. Sometimes it would get a little bit violent or a little bit physical. And again, Lucy doesn't write extensively about this, but, but she writes enough in some of the things that survive to give us a feel, at least, for the very difficult childhood that she had. And also, you know, sometimes her mother would make fun of her her nose. Father was Jewish, so there was this whole sort of discussion about the Jewish nose. Lucy kind of became almost, I don't want to say obsessed, but it was a recurring theme, and she would even make some photographs later on that kind of in profile that emphasized that. And it was something that her mother had made fun of her for. So Lucy had a kind of difficult relationship with her Jewish heritage. Her father didn't practice the faith, but Lucy did learn about her faith from her grandmother. But that was also connected to this other family drama because Lucy's mother was Catholic. And so there were a lot of things 
things going on there that made for some difficult moments. According to Judaic law, she would not be Jewish since her mother was uh, Gentile, but the Nazis later wouldn't care about that. That's right. The the Nazis didn't think of it that way, and, and their own definitions of who was a Jew, what constituted a Jew shifted over time. The the Nazis themselves had difficulty figuring out what they meant (laughs) by that category. But certainly, you know, anybody with with Jewish heritage, whether you practice the faith or not, was something, if that were known, that would put you in danger. So they got up the gumption to go together to Paris, and they were one of these post-World War I couples that just found great inspiration in the artistic scene in Paris. They had started their artistic work back in Nantes when they were young. Lucy was a writer. Suzanne had gone to art school. And they had done some early collaborations. Some of that work was published in the, the newspaper that Lucy's father owned and edited. But eventually, after the war, right after the war, they moved to Paris. They'd been to Paris before. Lucy's uncle was a well-known writer. Her aunt was also a famous actress of the day. So they had some connections to the artistic and, and cultural world of Paris. But they moved there, and they really became sort of involved in that scene, meeting other artists and hosting a lot of people in their living room. They became kind of the center of, a, of an artistic circle. And I think it really shaped their work and gave them an opportunity to grow and expand and to learn new things. And yet one of the things that's sort of interesting about them is that they didn't really, the way I talk about it in the book is to say that they didn't really become famous in their own day, at least not outside of that circle. I think they were certainly known by other artists, but you know, at the time they weren't famous in the 20s and 30s. They kind of, I think, kept into that artistic circle. As you mentioned earlier, they worked on the artistic names of Claude Kuhn and Marcel Moore. Do you think that was just surely an artistic thing, or do you think it might have been kind of the first inklings toward perhaps a transgender identification? It's a great question. My sense is that for them primarily it was about an artistic identity, establishing an artistic identity. I think a lot of other artists of that era were doing that, taking on new names. Georges Sand, another famous person, male artist, but from the day Man Ray, you know, other artists you can think of who sort of took on this artistic name. But it does certainly point towards, at the same time, I guess maybe I should have said that that's one part of it, and maybe in some ways just as important, is also the gender aspect. Because I do think that that they were exposed exploring and experimenting with a question of sort of gender and sexual fluidity. The question of whether we can talk about them as as transgender, that's a tricky question because that was not a category that they would have had access to at that time in the way that we think about that now. But certainly they were exploring those issues, I think. And, And one piece of evidence for that is that they were reading the very famous psychologist Havelock Ellis, a British psychologist who was writing about homosexuality, writing about many of these issues at the time. And they were reading him, in fact, translating him into French. And I think a lot of people were reading some of these psychologists and what were at the time called sexologists to try to understand their identity, to try to understand and, and come to terms with or make sense of the feelings and the, and the gender expression that they had or wanted to engage with and didn't have the language to do it. So they were, they were sort of working through those things at a time when so many of those categories were still kind of up for debate and for discussion. Because the word lesbian itself only tracks back to about 30 years before they go to Paris. It's like 1888 or something around yeah, that time. Yeah, and it, it has older connections too, but as a kind of word that's, you know, in the current discourse, there are several other terms as well. There was there were several different ways that they could have identified. Words that we would never use today, they've fallen out of fashion, they're, they're just not used. But what's interesting is that in their own writing, I could not find any evidence where they used any of those terms, really. They didn't talk about themselves in those terms. They just talked about themselves as artists or when they did talk about their relationship in more, it was usually Lucy writing it and it was it tended to be more in more sort of poetic terms. They didn't really, you know, use words like lesbian or, or any of the other terms of their day. There's at least one case I can think of where Lucy used the word friend, but friend in French at that time had a kind of same-sex connotation or certain usage of, the, of that term had a same-sex connotation. So it was definitely something that was part of the story, but how they expressed it was something I think that even they were, were grappling with. While they're there, they start an art project, and they called the output Butterflies. So the Butterflies refers to something that uh, really their surrealist friends uh, developed, this idea of posting little messages around the city to kind of surprise people, shock people. And they knew about that. It's hard to know whether they took part in that or not, but it was certainly something that was known by the Surrealists. And I've seen, you can find even some examples uh, from some museum collections online of some of these butterflies. And they were just designed to be these short little notes somebody would stumble upon or see posted up somewhere. And they would just 
kind of make you think that was just in, intended to be a, a little bit of a, of a sort of, of a surprise. And so that was something that they noticed and they took note of and, and possibly even participated in. It's hard to know, but that would really inform what they would end up doing on Jersey. It's almost as if they were kind of like proto memes. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. You know, they were something that short to the point, something that would circulate around in many cases, yeah, make you laugh or make you think twice or make you sort of scratch your head and say, what, <laughs> what is this? What's this message trying to say to me? But in the process would, you know, kind of get inside your head a little bit. And like a meme today that goes viral. I mean, I think that was, you know, to the extent you can use it, that kind of metaphor, I think that was what they were trying to do at the time in Paris, the surrealists, you know, to, to make those ideas kind of circulate in popular consciousness. Later, Suzanne talks about advertising and propaganda. Mm -hmm. And she seemed to be very in tuned and early on had an idea of what all this was all about. I think that's right. She says something to the effect of, uh, you know, it's sort of like you can't, you can't be alive now without seeing advertising, seeing propaganda, seeing messages that are coming at you from so many different directions. And I think that's true. You know, this really is that kind of early 20th century period is kind of the birth of modern propaganda and modern advertising both. Um, was that the Bernays era? Um, or was that a little bit later? I'm really sort of thinking about, in many ways, coming from the United States. I think a lot of American ad agencies are really kind of creating a lot of the, the, the techniques that, that would then spread out to other countries and to you know, become something that informs you know, how, how messages get created and circulated and who are the influencers. I mean, that was a term that was even talked about back then that we still use now. And so in some ways, I think Suzanne, in the way she talked about it, there was this kind of sense that we're all even in her time, you know, we're all sort of immersed in this language that's around us of, of trying to persuade, trying to convince, trying to, to nudge people or to push people towards a particular view. And so when they start to do that themselves, you know, I think, I think this is, comes up in her interrogation when the, one of the Nazis asks her, you know, did you study this or did you learn this? And she says something like, well, you know, it's all around us, <laughs> right? We didn't have to learn it. It's, it's everywhere. And so I think that's definitely another influence that, that comes into helping to shape what they go on to do. Because I think to some extent, we all try to manage perception, mm -hmm. at least about ourselves, if not about other things. And since they were in a society that wasn't open to their orientation, that they had to consciously think about managing perception of them. And that would definitely come in handy later on during the occupation. I think that's right. They did have to manage their perception very much because I think that while in the art world, well, even in the art world, being a lesbian or being gay, it was tricky. You know, it was more accepted, but not 100%. You know, there, were, there was still some kind of friction. There was still some kind of tension there. And this was at a moment when right after World War I, there was a real sense of concern on the part of a lot of people that we need to produce a new generation of soldiers in, in case we have to go to war again. So there was a real concern about people who were not producing babies. And so people in the, in the gay and lesbian community were often targeted because they were saying, you're not doing your national duty, you're not having children, you're not producing the next generation of soldiers. And so there was almost a kind of paranoia about lesbians in particular after the war, sort of more generally. But even, like I say, in the art world, there was not total acceptance. So I think you're right, managing that perception was something that they had to do. And, and they were certainly out in the way we would, they wouldn't have used that term, but in the way we would use that term, people understood, people knew within their circle, you know, what their relationship was. But I think it was still something, like you said, that, that they had to manage. Even though the art world does attract a lot of homosexual men, the heterosexual men that come there often seem to be hyper-masculine in some way to kind of make people not think that mm -hmm. they might be gay, a gay panic of a sort. Right. Yeah, and I think that was true, especially among the Surrealists that they were friends with. I mean, André Breton, who was one of the founders of Surrealism, he was notoriously homophobic, when, especially when it came to men. And at first, he really did not even like Lucy and Suzanne or Cahoon and Moore, as they were known in Paris among friends. He sort of pushed them away. Later, he would, he would come to accept them and to, and to really give praise to Lucy or, or Cahoon and say what a great writer she was. But a lot of that, I think, in particular had to do with the anxiety after the war about the fate of men and the fate of, of manhood after the war. So the whole generation of men die in World War I, and men who return from the war front are physically scarred or, or psychologically scarred. And so there's a lot of talk at that time about, you know, what does it mean to be a man, to be wounded, to be injured, to be shell-shocked. And even in the art world, when you look at surrealist art from that period, there's a lot of 
representation of sort of, of limbs being cut off or dismemberment or bodily injury. I think a lot of people were trying to work through, you know, what that meant. And so I think that homophobia, at least in part, comes from that kind of post-war anxiety. And you can definitely see that fear and terror in German expressionism of that era, too. Right. Just so many just stark images that just are horrifying. Everyone across Europe, all the combatant countries are really trying to make sense of the war experience and do it in a lot of different ways. You're right, that sense of anxiety is really powerful. Despite going through that horrible five or six year period of World War I, World War II is just around the corner. But in 37 or so, they decide to move to Jersey. What brings about this decision? So they moved to Jersey in large part because Paris has become very politically polarized by this point. There are sort of fascist or proto-fascist groups in France by the mid-30s. In fact, there's one sort of famous moment in sort of 34, 35, where there's essentially a kind of a coup attempt by forces on the far right. There are also communist groups. People are, are fighting in the streets over politics. It's just become a very sort of politically difficult moment. There's also a lot of anti-immigrant, anti-foreigner fear in France at the time, as well as anti-Semitism, which always ebbs and flows in French history, but really has sort of come back very strongly. And at the same time, of course, knowing what's happening in Italy, knowing what's happening in Germany, it seems like they had an understanding that things were going to get worse before they got better. So that was certainly one factor. And I think the other factor is that Lucy continued to be in ill health. And there was a sense that maybe going to Jersey would be an opportunity to sort of, you know, rest, relax, be in a more peaceful environment, but also one that was maybe better for health. Jersey is a beautiful island. I spent some time there in the course of this research, and I can understand why they would want to go. I mean, they had a beach right out in front of their house, and they could go, and they did go out on the beach and sunbathe and walk. And I think it just was an opportunity for rest, relaxation, recuperation, and escape as well. I think it's very much an important part of it. And they did have personal history there as well. They did have personal history. That's right. It was a familiar place. They had vacationed there for many years. Lucy's family had started going many years before, but then Lucy and Suzanne both had gone together, and they would usually stay at a hotel called the St. Berlades Bay Hotel, which, as it turned out, was right across the street from the house that they ended up buying. And so it was the, the neighborhood they knew, the beach they knew very well, and the whole island. It's not a large island. They certainly had a lot of experience there. And so it was a comfortable place to go. And from the photographs, it seems like a pretty large house. It is a large house. It's not enormous, but it's certainly spacious, much bigger than a Parisian apartment <laughs> would be. And I mean, they had a nice size apartment, I think, because they did come from money and they did have family money. I say in the book that they were never starving artists in their Paris days. They inherited some money right before the move to Jersey, so that allowed them to do that as well. But it is a nice size house. I didn't get to go into the house, but just looking at it from the outside, it's definitely you know got some space to it so they could spread out, they could enjoy. But it's also interesting that it's kind of secluded, too. I mean, it sits right on a, on a busy road, but it's behind some trees and it's behind some sort of walls. And so it's actually kind of secluded in a way. Even though it's easy access to lots of other things, the house was also very private, which I think is another thing they were very much looking for. And so two middle-aged women come to Jersey, set up a house together, and they tell the locals they're sisters and they're not lying. <laughs> That's right. That's the other twist to the story, which is that Lucy's divorced father married Suzanne's widowed mother in 1917. So they were also stepsisters. But they were already adults by this point. They were already adults. They were already in love by this point. They already had a, a longstanding relationship by that point. And so that gave them in many ways a kind of perfect cover, you know, to hide the relationship or, you know, if they needed to, you know, be a little more discreet, they could say, well, we're sisters. And, and as you say, it wasn't a lie. <laughs> it was perfectly true. It's another thing they don't really write about, though. They, you know, then the sources that survive, they don't talk about this being a strange situation or being, you know, a, a, a difficult or complex situation. I think for them, it's just the way it was. It was just their, their lives were already intertwined and they just became in some ways even more intertwined through the family connection. Since we view everything through a pandemic lens nowadays, right. <laughs> any near their writings, did you see any reference to the Spanish flu of the, the late 19-teens? I don't recall seeing anything. Um, I mean, I'll say that, you know, many of the of their writings were destroyed after the war and, and probably by the Nazis who actually at one point occupied their house and took over their house and billeted soldiers there. So it's possible that they did, but I didn't see anything in, in any of their writings. They get to move into the house early 1938, and they're just not there a couple of years and when Mr. Hitler comes a knocking on the Channel Islands. Right. It's not something really that anybody expected. A lot of the folks on Jersey 
you know, when the, when the war starts, it's in the east, it's in Poland, it's, it's elsewhere. And there's a sense that Jersey is so far away from the action. And in fact, uh, the British government thought that the Channel Islands would be a great place for people to go on vacation, you know, to kind of get out of war-weary London if, if things came that way. But it turns out that the Channel Islands were very much on Hitler's map because he wanted to use them for strategic purposes. The islands become part of what come to be known as the Atlantic Wall, which is not literally a wall, but it's a series of fortresses or fortifications, uh, bunkers, artillery uh, along the western coast of Europe. So starting in Finland and coming through the Channel Islands and then down the coast of France. And I talk about in the book that it's it's so important that Hitler receives regular updates from the islands about what's going on there. And they, of course, would have had no way, Lucy and Suzanne would have had no way of knowing that this would happen. But it certainly was the opposite of what they hoped, you know, trying to escape all the politics of the continent, trying to escape all the drama. And then turns out they find themselves right in the middle of it. Britain had made no attempt to defend the islands. Right. So when the Nazis come in, they're not exactly at a 100% just being vicious as they could be eventually. Right, right. I mean, the story of, of the war on Jersey, there have been a number of books actually written about just the, the whole story of the war. As you say, it's not a vicious front, right? It doesn't require, you know, the, they don't come in and sort of conquer, you know, in a, in a very violent way. There is some violence at the beginning. They do strafe and bomb as they first arrive. But the islands surrender very quickly. They surrender immediately as soon as the troops show up. And in general, relationships were pretty cooperative. People on the Channel Islands worked with the occupation forces. They didn't really have much choice. If they wanted to continue on with some semblance of a normal life, they had to collaborate in some way. They had to cooperate in some way. Most people did. And so you find them working for the Germans very quickly. And also, of course, the Germans saw people in, you know, Britain, France, as, you know, within the Nazi racial hierarchy, they saw them as superior peoples compared to those in the East that they were conquering and ultimately exterminating. So there was already kind of a predisposition to treat people on the islands better uh, than they were doing in the East. Yet at the same time, they were still an occupation force. They were still a conquering army. And so there was always that threat of violence. There was always that possibility that if people didn't cooperate or if something went wrong, then there could be some significant consequences. Now, on the island, was it predominantly Catholic or Anglican or just a mix? Or I think it was a mix, probably predominantly Anglican, but there, there were definitely Catholic churches there as well. The church that was right next door to Lucy and Suzanne's house was an Anglican church, and that actually ends up coming to play an important role for them. They painted a banner that they hung up in the in the church that said, Jesus is great, but Hitler is greater, because Jesus died for people, but people die for Hitler. And it was their way of really sort of making fun of, you know, what people were doing, you know, that, to say that, you know, Hitler had duped everyone into dying for him. So when they hung this banner up in the church, this was a church where German soldiers would have been worshiping, some of them anyway. There's no record of what people's response was, but uh, I imagine they were pretty shocked to see it. <laughs> While they were disappointed in many of their neighbors and fellow islanders about not putting an, enough of resistance, they do undertake this program of psychological warfare against the occupiers. Exactly. That's the heart of the story, really, is this work that they do. And they do it for four years. They Pretty early on, they decide that they want to do something. They don't know what at first, but they come to realize that they have some skills, they have some talents as artists, as writers, and they decide to, to write notes and to write songs and poems. And they also are listening to a radio that they have hidden away. I mean, it, it, early on, the radios are still legal, but at one point they become illegal. They're supposed, everyone's supposed to turn in their radio because the Germans are worried about BBC broadcasts, possibly sending coded messages or helping to organize resistance. But Lucy and Suzanne keep their radio, or they, well, they actually get a second when they get a, a black market radio. So another thing that they do is summarize BBC news reports. So all of these notes, these poems and songs and jokes, bits of dialogue that they invent, and BBC see news summaries and sometimes illustrations and other kinds of things, they start writing these things and leaving them around the island for the Nazis to find. And the idea exactly, as you say, it's a psyops campaign, psychological operations. They want to really try to get inside the minds of these German soldiers and really convince them that they should go home. <laughs> and they had quite the discussion on 
how they should name their imaginary author of these notes. Right. So what were the discussions about the name for this person like? Well, initially they think we'll write these notes with multiple voices. They sort of invent a kind of fictional cast of characters to author these notes, although all of them unnamed though at first. For example, they would type on their typewriter, which was also illegal. They shouldn't have had a typewriter that was considered contraband. They would type with different amounts of pressure on the keys to make it look like different people were writing this. And the idea was that the Germans would think, well, there are many different authors who were doing this. But at some point, after a number of months of of this campaign, they decide to kind of consolidate most of that work into one single author. And they end up calling him the soldier with no name. It comes from a series of discussions that they have. Suzanne was fluent in German, and she tells Lucy, well, that's not grammatically the most, you know, in German, it's not what you would really translate it as. But it connects back to a, a kind of a, a saying or a phrase that Lucy had, had come up with. She had been using the phrase, and, and they'd been writing this phrase, ona enda, which means without end. I mean, Lucy had found this in a magazine, and it had really spoken to her and they had written this phrase without end as a way to kind of say to the soldiers, this is an endless war. You know, this is a war without end. And so they took that phrase and it kind of ended up getting adapted into the, the soldier with no name. It, there's a phonetic or a linguistic connection between those phrases in German. And so they basically then create this persona uh, and they pretend to be a, a German soldier or they write these notes sort of in the guise of a German soldier. And that becomes then something that they hope they hope that other soldiers will, will read these notes and think, oh, wow, one of us in our community, somebody, another German soldier is fed up with the war. And so they hope that it would have a kind of authenticity. Ona Enda makes me think of later Orwell with the Forever Wars. Yeah. And I think they were getting at that, trying to get at that idea that, you know, if you really believe what the Nazis believe, or if you follow that logic, there will be endless wars, because that's the sort of culmination of fascism. Fascism always seeks to go to war, because it always seeks to conquer, it always seeks to dominate and control. And Hitler talked about, you know, that, that war is the place where we demonstrate our German greatness. You know, it's the ultimate goal of fascism in many ways is to go to war. And so I think they understood that, and they understood that this was not a war to end all war, as the United States and the British would say, but rather that this was, in fact, the first stage you know, of an endless war if the fascists won. And I think they were trying to use that, just those phrases, you know, to get that idea across to the soldiers and convince them that, you know, why are you fighting for this? <laughs> right? Otherwise, you'll just you'll be the one going back to the battlefield in a few more years. So what different places, where would they drop these little notes? And could you give us a couple examples of what they wrote on the notes? Sure. They would drop them in any place they, that they really felt people would see them. Sometimes they would pin them to a fence post. <laughs> they would drop some in a mailbox and hope that they would get delivered in the regular mail. They would be walking down the street and maybe slip one onto a cafe table. I tell a story in the book about how there was a kind of drawing on their photography experience. They took some magazines, cut them up, and essentially made a photo montage. And then that what they would do is take that to a newsstand and buy a copy or, or look at a copy of that same magazine or a German language magazine and they would slip this photo montage in there so that whichever German soldier, it was a German language magazine, whichever soldier would buy the magazine would find this weird photo montage and you know have a kind of shocking experience. So there were a lot of different ways that they tried to distribute the messages. At least one they also put in a bottle and threw it in the bay, hoping it would wash up somewhere else and, and someone would find it. And the kinds of things that they wrote on there a lot of what they wrote were these dialogues, bits of conversation supposedly between different German soldiers about, you know, kind of their frustration with the war or something like, you know, will this war ever be over or I'd like to go home to my family to so things like that. They would come up with little rhymes. I know there was one, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but something like, you know, kind of going through all the different Nazi leadership and saying that these people, you know, are doing all these other things, but, you know, who's working for us? Who's helping us? Who's doing anything for us? There were also songs that they would invent. There's a song that becomes an important part of when I describe the trial, when they're, when they're arrested and put on trial, that becomes one of the things that gets discussed. And they, this is a, it's supposed to be a heroic song, but really it's about how a soldier goes away and his wife ends up getting pregnant. And she says to him something like, oh, well, don't worry, you know, the fatherland needs soldiers. I mean, it's a way of kind of, you know, pushing that idea that, you know, the men are off at war and the women are still at home and you really should be back at home with your wife instead of, <laughs> instead of here on Jersey. So one of the hallmarks of fascism then, and it seems like nowadays too, that sexism and misogyny mm -hmm. is a large part of it. And because of that, women in the resistance in France and here on Jersey are often underestimated so they can get away with a lot more than men would be able to get away with. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think certainly in the French resistance, women played a really crucial role. They were involved in transporting secret messages. They were involved in smuggling weapons. They would hide resistance fighters in their homes, provide them with supplies and things. Sort of being women allowed them to fly under the radar and kind of incorporate their regular duties, but into their resistance activities. So doing the laundry for, you know, not just their family, but for the resistance cell that was nearby, you know, or something, or feeding them or doing things like that. Lucy and Suzanne didn't quite fit the traditional sort of women's roles at the time. They were doing other kinds of things. But I think it did still, that that sexist perception on the part of the Germans did allow them to slip under the radar because they did welcome people into their home, other people from Jersey. They did allow people to connect with one another in their home. And I think ultimately when they're arrested, the men, the, the Germans who are interrogating them, you know, keep asking them, well, who's doing this? You know, who, who are you working with? <laughs> because they can't fathom the idea that these two women alone would be writing all these notes because they keep finding the notes. The, the soldiers keep finding the notes that are signed, the soldier with no name. And they figured out that Lucy and Suzanne are involved, but they can't imagine that these two women alone would be the only ones who would be writing this. So they keep questioning them. And I think there's a real sense of surprise and shock on the part of the, of the Germans as they begin to realize what, what's really been happening here. Think if they would have had a mimeograph machine back then. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. They, they used their typewriter to make multiple copies, actually. They would take many sheets of very thin paper um, and put it through the typewriter. And they said they were able to make 10 copies at a go with certain of this really, really thin paper. I've never tried it. I'll have to take them at their word uh, that they were able to do this. But they, what they did was sometimes they would, if they had a message that they really liked, they would do it multiple times. And so they might have 50, 100 copies of certain messages. Um, this comes up again in their interrogation and in their trial and that they would distribute that multiple places. They end up getting asked, you know, how many of these did you produce? And they, in the remaining documents, they give different wildly varying estimations of how many of these they produced. At one point, the, the file that they have um, that the police end up compiling is something like 300 or so notes. But they basically say, oh, that's just a fraction of what we ended up doing. I'm sure it was hundreds and hundreds of notes, just based on the descriptions that they give. So in these interrogations, Suzanne puts up this extremely brave, if not a bit nihilistic face Yeah. in the face of questioning. How did you get the information on these exchanges? And if they were just her recollections, how honest do you think they were in the portrayal of what actually happened? That's a great question. So a lot of the material, especially about the arrest and the trial, is drawn from Suzanne's recollections. So those documents are housed at Yale University, and so I spent some time looking at those there in their archive, and really sort of taking those and reconstructing what happens to them during that phase of, of the story, and then interspersing what remains from Lucy's material. A lot of Lucy's stuff, because once they're rediscovered as photographers in the 1980s, the person who ends up getting the credit for the work is actually Lucy in her persona as Claude Cahoon, because she's the one in most of the photographs. And so she becomes sort of the name in a way. And so there are some folks who've then come along and reprinted some of her material later on. So some of Lucy's stuff is printed, but, but Suzanne's stuff is all in the archive. It's never been reproduced. It's never been um, really looked at as far as I can find anyone else. So taking Lucy's printed material and Suzanne's archival material, I was able to reconstruct a lot of this. But it is true that it was all written after the war. And so, you know, one of the things that I had to try to do is to think about, you know, as you said, how honest are they being? How much of this is a sort of performance at the time as well as after the fact? Because I think that there are ways clearly that they are and I think Suzanne in some ways is more forthcoming about this in her reminiscences, that they are performing a show for the Germans, you know, that they are trying to put on a kind of front or kind of a face for them, because I think they want to, to maintain that, you know, that sense of, you know, we're in the right. And this is <laughs> we were doing this, you know, because we believe that you you are wrong and, and, and we're trying to, you know, to, to fight you. She did it in a sort of polite way. But I think, again, that's part of the performance that really comes through in, in some of the, the writings. While what they face is a kangaroo court, mm -hmm. it seems like it's the slowest kangaroo I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> the trial does go on. I think it's something like five hours or something. It's uh, uh, But even the, the procedures to get up to that point, it seems like it just drags on forever. Yeah, they're interrogated multiple times by multiple different people. I think a lot of the interrogation was because the Germans continued to sort of 
not believe that they did this on their own. I think they wanted to find out if there were other people involved. You know, what survives in the archival record is, you know, it's not a transcript of what actually, it's Suzanne, a lot of it is Suzanne's recollections. So it seems entirely possible that there were other questions, you know, that they were being asked that don't get recorded in the in the archives. But I think part of it was this sense of trying to figure out who these women were and were they working with other people and what, you know, what other connections did they have? So that may be one reason why it went on for a while. And it's also ironic that it did because by the time that they're arrested and interrogated, the German war effort is falling apart. <laughs> you know, it's clear that the, that the tide has turned against the Nazis. So in some ways, you know, you sort of think, well, why were they spending all this time and energy to interrogate these people when it seems like that this is not going their way. But I think there was the sense that, you know, this was still such a strategically important location on Jersey that they were going to do this until the very end, that they were going to continue to interrogate these people as much as they could <laughs> to try to get the information from them in hopes that somehow that would make a difference <laughs> at this point in the war. Or maybe it was just inertia or maybe it was Pangloss just saying, make your gardens grow. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. It, it could have just been that sort of bureaucratic institutional, like you said, inertia or just that sense of this is what we do and we're going to continue to do it. And, you know, it ends up producing a, a, a kind of dramatic courtroom scene in the book because, you know, when they are questioned and interrogated, they also push back during their trial. You know, they never seem to let up in pushing and saying, you know, what you are doing here, what you Germans are doing here is ridiculous. And we're, we're just not going to cooperate in any way. <laughs> there, there's always a kind of a sense that, that maybe maybe they say it politely, but they're, they're not going to give any ground. During this process, as cruel and as evil as the Third Reich is, there's always this weird, perverse sense of legality Mm -hmm. that underpins a lot of things. So they have this weird adherence to this facade of legalism through these proceedings. Right. There are procedures to follow. And so they follow those procedures to the letter. And so they're assigned an attorney and actually their first attorney, they don't really get along with him and they sort of won't cooperate with him. And so he quits and then they're assigned another attorney. This is a, a military court. So they're this, it's an officer that is assigned to defend them. And the second attorney is also, he doesn't like them. He's sort of like, I don't understand you. I don't, you know, what are, I, I don't want to defend you. <laughs> I can't defend you. And they come to really hate him. And, and there's a lot of conflict between them. And But yet, as you say, the, the process goes on. So the trial, like I said, is lasts for something like five hours. And eventually they're convicted and, and they're sentenced to death. That's the sentence for, you know, trying to undermine morale. Let's leave the rest of the story <laughs> for the, the reader to explore. Okay. But I was telling some co-workers about the general gist of the story. And they're going, when can I watch this movie? <laughs> so has there been any interest at all in making a film about these two women? I think there has been some interest. I've gotten a couple of emails uh, myself, and uh, I think that my agent has also gotten some some queries from some producers. And so I have no idea if this will you know turn into anything. But it's, it's funny you say that because over the years, as I've told people about this, uh, I've had people say the same thing to me. They'll say, oh, this would make a great Netflix series or this would make a great movie or whatever. And so, you know, fingers crossed. It would be great if it if it did. And I think it really would be a, a, a great film or, or series or something because it's got all the elements, you know, of sort of drama. And yet at the same time, part of what drew me to the story and I think part of what is kind of compelling about it is it's not a typical World War II story in a lot of ways. I mean, it does have certain elements of that, certainly. But Lucy and Suzanne are not the kinds of characters or the kinds of people that we see normally appearing in those stories. And the kinds of things that they do are not the kinds of things that we typically think of or see. And, you know, given their background of who they are, their relationship, their work as artists, I've often talked about this as the World War II story you've never heard before. I hope that that rings true. I think, I think that people who read the book and maybe, hopefully, if, if there is a movie one day, will see this as... Uh, really a kind of unique story, something that, that you've not encountered before, if, especially if you're a World War II buff or, you know, if you've read a lot of things about World War II. I think this is the kind of book that you're going to learn something new, at least I hope so. And it seems that we're in a boom period for recognizing women's contributions to history, right. to culture over the centuries that they've been marginalized and written out of for such a long time. But you, as a male scholar, mm -hmm. did you have any particular feelings about how you should approach this since you were dealing with women's stories and you yourself aren't a woman? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think one of the things that historians try to do, and I think we, we work hard at this, is to develop 
the ability to empathize with whoever we're writing about. When I think about previous projects that I've worked on in French history, I'm not French, but, I, but I'm able to, to try as best I can to inhabit that mindset or to get inside the minds of other folks. And, and so I think I tried to use that same approach in writing their story, thinking about what was it like to be them? What were the kinds of things that they were experiencing? And of course, you know, over the years reading and, and teaching a lot of aspects of women's history, just in my normal teaching life at Rhodes. That's something that I think also kind of helped to prepare. The one thing that I also thought a lot about was to think about their sexuality and their identity as lesbians, because that's something I wanted to be very respectful about. So I didn't want to try to write about things there that weren't in the sources that, that, that I couldn't hear their voice about. And so that's why I say that since they didn't write a lot about their relationship, I didn't want to try to talk about that in great detail simply because they didn't provide me with the information about that. And so I didn't want to try to, you know, read something into that or try to fill that out in a way where I really couldn't do that. I really wanted to respect in particular that aspect of their of their relationship. So what kind of primary sources did you have access to in your research? So I had access to these published documents that were written by Lucy that, as I said, kind of once they were rediscovered, you know, a lot of her material gets reprinted. Some of that was work that had been previously published, you know, some of her creative work, because Lucy was a writer after all. She does publish a kind of memoir is maybe not the best (laughs) way to describe it. It's It's a very surrealist kind of inward exploration of feelings. And I mean, it's autobiographical, certainly, but it's difficult to pin down into a category. So there are things like much that. Much as she was. Yeah, much as she was, that's right. There are things like that had been previously published. Some of the documents that, that were printed later are also letters that she wrote. And these kind of, I guess you'd call them sort of sketchbook or sort of, I'm not even really sure what you would call them exactly, but just kind of thoughts, paragraphs, just almost stream of consciousness at times, just sort of writing about the experience. And sometimes she would write about things about her past, but then she would write about literature she had read, or she would write about other, just completely other things, right? And then she would have a paragraph about the war experience and about, so it was was mixed in with a lot of other kinds of things. So it was very integrated. It wasn't taking each thing out to develop on its own. She was kind of giving a whole view of herself. Yeah, I think, and and very mixed together. And and like you said, that's, in some ways, that's very typical of, of her. It's very difficult to read that stuff. I mean, it's just, I mean, the French is very hard. And the structure, it doesn't really have a lot of structure. It's just, like I said, it's almost kind of a stream of consciousness at times. And then letters, but the letters are also kind of very much in that same style. And then Suzanne's archival material that's at Yale and also material that's at Jersey, that was also kind of challenging because what Suzanne did, and again, this is many years after the war, she would have these sheets of paper and she would write a sentence or two and then she would draw a line. And then under that, she would write something else. And then she would draw another line, and then she would write something else, two, three, four sentences, sometimes a paragraph, and draw another line. So I would find these sheets of paper that would have these sections, right? None of the sections on the page had anything to do with one another frequently. It was almost like she was, again, kind of writing things as they came to her, and then drawing a line, and then writing a totally different, unrelated thought. So I had a lot of work to sort of take all of this material that was very fragmentary, which is often the case with archival material, but it seemed even more so with this work, and really sort of piece it together and to try to understand how it all, it really was like putting a puzzle together, much more so even than I think previous work that I had done. Sorry to drag you back into the current day, but since you study that interwar period, you teach a course on fascism, and you see that conflict between the left and the right back then, And we have quite a bit of contentiousness now between the left and right in America and around the world, especially with the rising authoritarianism in Eastern Europe. What similarities and what dissimilarities are you seeing from then to now? That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, explain the world to me. Right, right. (laughs) I think in terms of dissimilarities, you know, to me, one of the biggest changes has to do with communication technology, social media, computers, the, the instantaneous nature of information, how we communicate that, and how, how those bubbles get created. It's much easier, I think, to find yourself in a bubble that's giving you the same, you know, an echo chamber with only the same information. Not that that wasn't possible in the past. I think it, it was. People would often, you know, often seek out people of your own ilk or of your own same mindset. 
But I think we've found ways now through technology to reinforce that, you know, even more so. In terms of similarities, you know, I think what's interesting is that fascism always thrives on a narrative of victimhood. Fascism really works and resonates with people when a leader says, we have been victimized. We are the ones who are somehow under threat. Usually that's under threat from someone who can be characterized as an outsider. And so our community is being assaulted from without. And that has proven to be a powerful message, I think, in the 20th century and the 21st century. And I think, you know, it would take a much longer time than we have to sort of think about why that is. But I think there's something powerful about just that sense of creating those identities and reinforcing those through otherness, right? Through the kind of us versus them logic. It's not maybe unique to fascism, but fascism really thrives on that. And that's something that I think Lucy and Suzanne really fought that precisely because they were looking at the world in bigger terms. I think they were looking at the world in more universal terms. And that's one of the things that I talk about in the book that when they're in prison, they actually end up sort of making friends, I guess you could say, or befriending their, some of their guards. And one of the reasons why they're able to do that, I think, is that they can empathize with these guards. I mean, they sort of understand, you know, here are men who are away from home, who are in this unusual situation. Lucy and Suzanne both had family, had brothers and cousins who had fought in World War One, And so they're able to, you know, understand the soldier's plight. And so by being able to transcend that kind of tribal identity, that sort of narrow identity, they actually see the soldiers, you know, as sort of as, as Hitler's victims in a way. They almost, I don't want to say exactly take pity on them, but they see them in a different light, right, than, than simply as conquerors who've come to take over the island. They're able to still see their humanity in the midst of all this. And to me, that is part of what's interesting about the story is that, that if you want to fight fascism, you've got to think about our common humanity, right? Not just us versus them, but rather they are part of us and we are part of them and there's a connection there. And to me, I think that's one of the things that really comes through in the story. Well, and also they spent the previous four years trying to occupy inside the minds of these men in order to, to influence them. So they, right. they had given a lot of thought to how these people think. That's right. And I, and I think that... Um, and just people. And just people. And I think that that helped them, as you say, to kind of understand where the Germans were coming from and also what would work, you know, we, like we were talking about before with advertising and propaganda. I mean, they were trying to understand their, their psychology to figure out what would <laughs> what message would, would work for them. But I think it also came out of a sense that, you know, here we are, two French women living on this island, but we still have something in common with these soldiers, that they are not completely other to us. And Lucy even sort of, she very explicitly talks about it as the desire to help the soldiers liberate themselves. And one of the stories I tell sort of at the end of the book is that after the war, one of their guards writes a letter to them from a POW camp and basically says, you know, I'm doing well and say hello to everybody. And, <laughs> you know, I don't think there are too many German guards who wrote to the prisoners that they had guarded after the war from a POW camp. And when I came across that letter, I, I mean, it was just sort of a shocking thing. You know, it's like, here's one of their guards, you know, literally writing them a letter to say hello. That to me speaks of the ability, the ability that they had to really connect with people on a human level. And again, I mean, like I said, that's one of the ways you fight fascism, right, is to think about the common humanity so that we're not just sort of in that locked in that us versus them mentality. When I lived in Germany in the mid-90s, I actually met a gentleman who had been conscripted when he was 17 into the, the German army in, in 44, and he said he was captured almost immediately, yeah. and he spent his POW time in South Arkansas. Oh, yeah. And he said he was the happiest POW on the face <laughs> of the planet. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. And a lot of the soldiers on Jersey were very happy to be in Jersey because, you know, after 1941, the Eastern Front, the Russian Front, was very brutal. And there were some men who ended up coming to Jersey from the Russian front. And there was a real worry that we might get sent to Russia. And if we get sent to Russia, it's, it's over. I mean, you know, well, it's, it's, it was so brutal. So being on Jersey, it was not the same exactly as what you're talking about, but it, they, they understood that it was a... Light duty. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a good place to be during the war. And yet, of course, you know, they continued to do their duty like we were talking about. But I think that's also something Lucy and Suzanne understood. They understood that these men were, were doing their duty, and obviously they disagreed deeply with what that duty was, and that's why they were trying to convince them 
to leave and go home or that the war effort was fruitless and they shouldn't be spending all this this effort to do it. But they still were able to connect at that at that human level. When we were speaking about fascism and its parallels to today, it just came to mind how similar the QAnon conspiracy theory has so many similarities with the Protocols of Elders of Zion and the blood Mm -hmm. libel against the Jews. Mm -hmm. You have the drinking of a baby's blood. You have the cannibalism. You have the Satan worship. It just seems like the Russians who originally wrote the Protocols in order to discredit Jewish people Mm -hmm. just kind of moved the template over one couple of steps to do QAnon. I think there's something about conspiracy theories that seem to work well with fascism, or fascism seems to thrive sometimes on conspiracies. Because it again, it kind of goes back to that sense of victimhood, you know, that idea that somehow, even though we're the ones in charge and we're the ones running the show, somehow we're simultaneously the victims. And so conspiracies reinforce that idea that everything is not what it appears to be and that there's really another narrative going on here. So it allows people in power or it, it convinces people in power that somehow that power is fragile, that it's tentative, and therefore we have to fight to keep that power. It's, it really is, I think, in some ways, a kind of fear of falling, fear of failure, fear of losing that power that you have. And so conspiracies just, just kind of feed that fear. And so you're right, there's a weird consistency <laughs> between various conspiracy theories, but they're all functioning around that same fear. And I think so often when people show those fear toward others, it's the fear they have for themselves. So they enact the brutality they expect they would get from others. Right, that there's a a kind of, almost like a sort of projection, you know, Mm. about if I don't do this to you, you're going to do this to me. That certainly happened on the Russian front. Uh, I mean, if you read, there's some really good scholarship about what happens in Russia, and some historians have argued that the place where Nazi propaganda was the most effective, really, was among soldiers at the Russian front, because that propaganda was sort of being acted out in the moment of some very fierce fighting. And a lot of that propaganda was exactly that idea that they are out to get us, right? Well, in fact, they were because they were literally on the <laughs> on the front, right? These Those other soldiers, you know, the other would kill us if we don't kill them first. But I think, you know, it, it makes sense to, to think about that in a, in a the hot zone of a battlefront, but the logic of it is is happening, you know, throughout that propaganda and throughout that kind of Nazi mindset. And it works better in some places than others. I think my sense is that on Jersey, the soldiers who are on Jersey, because it was it was in a, in a much more peaceful place, it was not a battle zone. They were not as interested in enact that violence as you say. They weren't going to do that to somebody else first before it got done to them. But yet, there was still that fear or that or that possibility, right? And so Lucy and Suzanne, throughout the whole time, they don't know what's going to happen. And basically, Lucy every day thinks today's it, today's the last day, and especially when they're in prison. She pretty much expects any minute for the door of the prison cell to open and to be taken away. It seems like that sense of fear never really ends until the war finally is over. So... As we speak, it's still a couple of weeks before the official publication date for the book. I know it's unfair to ask, and you probably won't want to share it, but just tell me if you do have another idea in mind that you're kicking around. You mean for a new project? Yeah. I do have an idea. I'm not quite sure I want to announce it at this point, but, um, you know, it's interesting. You were talking about moving forward in time. I I think if if I do pursue this next project... It will move me even even further along in the time frame of the 20th century. It's something that would be a Cold War story, actually. An episode that happens at the Berlin Wall in the 1960s, in the early days of the wall. It's an episode that's known about, but it's not something that's widely known. In some ways, similar to the story of Lucy and Suzanne. I think, you know, their story has been known by people, but not broadly. And so I think this would be kind of a similar story in that respect. So I'll just leave it at that for now, and uh, we'll hopefully get a chance to talk again soon uh, about that. Uh, <laughs> It doesn't involve James Cagney and Coca-Cola bottles, does it? <laughs> no. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's another story about, you know, because in some ways I think about the story of Lucy and Suzanne as a story of of ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. I think I'm I think I'm sort of drawn to those stories and I think that was the the book on the Paris flood that I did was kind of a similar thing, you know, what happens when when ordinary people are kind of thrust into those circumstances. And I mean, you know, Lucy and Suzanne, they're extraordinary in many ways, right? Their their talents, their abilities as artists, their skills, their mindset, but they're also, you know, they're not powerful, they're not famous, they're not in charge of anything. They're just women living out their lives and, you know, kind of going about their business. 
And so when they find themselves in that situation, they have to respond. And there's a kind of moral and ethical dilemma that they face. And I think that's, you know, if I do pursue this next project, it, it will have some of the same kinds of themes that, you know, what do we do when we're faced with kind of a moral dilemma, when forces at work around us kind of push us into this kind of ethical quandary and how do we respond as individuals? So, like I said, we'll see in, in uh, a few years, maybe, or <laughs> I don't know how long it will be until we get a chance to talk about that one. But <laughs> and for the listener, I was referring to the Billy Wilder movie, One, Two, Three, which is one of my favorite comedies of all time. <laughs> well, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for letting me sit on your porch for an hour. It's been a, a real pleasure. Well, I really appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks for coming over, and I'm glad we had a chance to talk. It was great. Thank you. Thanks. Dr. Jeffrey H. Jackson is the author of Paper Bullets, Two Artists Who Risked Their Lives to Defy the Nazis, which is published by Algonquin. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at booktalk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.